and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. How much time do we spend as a nation doing pointless, unproductive things? And do we have to keep doing them, or is there a way to make our economy more useful, more genuinely productive? Joining me today is Giles Wilkes, now at the Institute for Government and responsible for industrial strategy during the Theresa May era. Hello, Giles. Welcome to The Bunker. Great to be here, Ros. Recently, Giles wrote a post about what he's dubbed the crud economy, which intrigued me a lot. So I invited him on the bunker to talk about it. Giles, what is the crud economy? Goodness. Well, um, can I say first, thanks for responding so energetically to what was just a kind of a rant, Uh, a, a rant I had one morning after a jog when I was just as I often do when I'm running, thinking about the economy and trying to get to this, the bottom of a problem that has, obsesses everybody right now, which is why at a time of gigantic technological change, are we still stagnating? People seem to be unhappy. They're not happy with their jobs. We're worried about being able to do things like climate change, like deal with our elderly population. And also a sense, borrowing a word from a friend of mine, Stian Westlake, of inauthenticity, that some of us feel like we're working at jobs that aren't actually contributing to the output. So it feels, as a as a white-collar owner, there's a large amount of this as a self-own, if you like. But I'm trying to work out why is it that it feels like we're putting in more and more effort, working hard, doing lots of activities, and we can't see the link to the stuff we need out of the economy. So I started just thinking aloud about that and came up with the word crud for it, which is um, probably rather more insulting than I intended because a lot of it is what we all do. And a lot of it is simply a reflection of the way the economy becomes ever more complex and intermediated as it becomes more sophisticated and sort of multifaceted. So, yeah, it was basically a big think aloud about that with very little in the way of answers. Well, at least we can talk around if we can't get answers. The LSE's David Graeber wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs a few years ago, where he talked about jobs that were unfulfilling. Is that something that you drew on when you were thinking about this? You got me to reread that essay that he also described as a rant, I think. He just sat down one day and said, my God, why is there all this stuff that feels like bullshit? And I think I've got a slightly different perspective. I, I'm not able to speak entirely for his views, particularly as I haven't read the book that followed that article. But he seemed to think that capitalism produces more than enough for everybody. And this is a vision that the great economist John Maynard Keynes came out with in the 20s in a fantastic essay called Essay to My Grandchildren, where he anticipated that we'd be able to produce far, far more and we should should lead a life of leisure, you know, 15 hours a week maybe and the rest of the time in opera if Keynes had his way. And we're not there. And Graeber noticed that a lot of us seem to be working very, very hard at things. And he, it struck me that his theory was that this was kind of artificial, capitalism forcing people to sort of performatively work in kind of symbolic jobs or jobs that are about boosting the status of other people. My view is that the economy, as it gets more and more complicated, and as a consequence of the freedom that's at the heart of it, in other words, people are allowed to do what they like, and as a consequence of people's natural incentives to cheat and cut corners and come up with weird schemes, produces all sorts of activities that don't have a direct relationship to output at all, but are kind of like dealing with the complexity. So you know, the classic example for me is antivirus software. There's a whole industry of antivirus software because there's a whole industry of viruses. And met together, this is just a whole waste of bits and bytes. But it's all out there and it's going to never go away. And so I don't think it's as pointless or as performative as I think Graeber does. But it's as frustrating in a sense to the economists wondering why we're not producing more stuff we really want. Is this why our productivity is so low? 
I think it's a really good re- I mean, I think it's a really important explanation for it. And if I can digress slightly, um, I mentioned my friend T- Stephen Westlake, who wrote a really good and influential book called The Rise of Intangible Capital. And intangible capital is obviously, you know, rather than like bricks and, and pylons and electric wires and so forth, it's all the stuff like management software or new ideas. And it it sounds like intangible capital is the stuff you want as you develop. You don't want to have to mine for more coal or pour more concrete in order to grow. You want to have like this nice weightless world of ideas. And that sounds like a more growth enhancing world. And I reviewed his book, which is excellent. I thought there's one question that I don't think they got into enough, which is whether intangible capital is necessarily a good thing. Because a lot of it is people in a kind of zero sum fight over the same economic outcome, you know, advertising campaigns fighting over the same sort of food market, for example. So I was thinking, well, what if we're constantly in a battle to produce more of this, like cleverer software, cleverer management systems, more advertising campaigns, more PDFs, more like training courses to deal with money laundering? What if we're doing all of this stuff and we're innovating all the time to do it? But ultimately, it's a kind of like pointless sort of rat race towards something that isn't really valuable or is just not producing more of the actual stuff we want. So I think, yeah, it is possible that the greatest innovations are just producing more of this crud. And I think maybe the great example is what these large language models might produce, you know, more and more text. And I haven't got time to read all the stuff I've already got. And not solving the really knotty and difficult problems we need to solve. So yes, yeah, because I mean, ChatGPT just mines huge amounts of data and then sp- spits out a version of that data yeah. fun- fundamentally, doesn't it? You can see how that might be a useful activity. Oh, hugely. But I mean, it's not innovative. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think it could have some incredible applications. Don't get me wrong. Like, Imagine all those poor lawyers like 30 years ago having to go through the library to find all the previous cases. Uh, Large language models would be absolutely superb for that and they'll be able to extract the information. I've already heard of fantastic applications used for it, but I also worry that it's going to run into something else that's sort of timeless, which is Parkinson's law, which is you get rid of a whole load of work by automating it or finding some technological solution and inevitably the space is occupied by more work that somehow comes up. Like... If you described email to someone using snail mail in the 50s, they'd have thought, well, that's fantastic. It's going to save me all these messenger boys and stamps and people on bicycles and so forth. But as a result, we've just got more email and that's filled in the space. Now, how do we know whether ChatGPT is going to occupy that kind of world or is it going to solve problems that we genuinely couldn't solve before and sort of free up resources for things we genuinely need? Law and being risk averse and compliance mm. plays a big part in the in the crud economy in your I reading, think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, one of the five or six sort of inspirations I got for this was when I was doing a compliance course at home. You know, the email comes out and says you need to prove to the world that you're not going to inadvertently launder money or give away secrets to Russians or insider trade. And so I went through a very entertaining video and a quiz. And I thought, this is, you know, it's two hours of my day. I won't, won't put a figure on what two hours of my day is worth, but it's not nothing. And this is also now an industry. Somebody out there is running a company that produces PowerPoints and amusing videos and marks you and is making revenue and is being recorded as GDP in the economy. But in an ideal world, in the sort of conception of the economist where you put in inputs and outcomes something valuable like fish or buildings or nursing services, this is just, um, it's a transitional 
transactional frictional cost. It's not a thing that we really need. And so, yeah, we do seem to have more of that because we are risk averse. And I think it's important to reflect that we do get something for that. I mean, I was part of the coalition government where there's this thing called the red tape challenge where they were saying, well, let's get rid of all these pointless rules and the economy will spring forth. And they were trying to do things like say, well, why do we have rules about flammable sofas? And it took people like the Royal Society for the Protection of Accidents to come in and say, we remember when people used to routinely die because they'd fall asleep with the cigarette burning. We're trying to avoid that sort of thing. And it's worth something. Or the compliance you have to do when you're organising school trips or events is inspired by the horrific murders in Soham 20 years ago and people just wanting to avoid that. So, yeah, risk aversion leads to it and we get something in return for it. Aircraft don't drop out of the sky. There are some parts of the crud economy that are you don't think we should get rid of, aren't there? Things, activities which are not really economically productive but we still kind of need. What sort of things are you thinking of there? Well, I, I think in a sense... A lot of it, the fact that we can do things that are not directly relevant to production in a really crude way, the fact that most people don't have to justify their role in the world like we're in a socialist planning world where you have to justify whether you're going to get more output as a result of it is a sign of our civilization and advancement. I mean, I would say, ironically, I'm not meaning to take a swipe at uh, a late philosopher, but that we have anthropology professors who can write books about the bullshit economy is a sign that we're in advanced and <laughs> you know if we were in a desperate position where everyone was having to desperately grow crops and and keep disease at bay then we wouldn't have anthropology professors writing entertaining books or medieval poetry professors or way more netflix shows than we actually need or way more novels than anyone could possibly ask for we we're not in that kind of a planned resource constrained economy partly because you know, we're we're allowed to flower forth in all sorts of different ways, you know, opera. So I've got no particular problem with that because it's a consequence of freedom. But I do think it does help explain why more input, more intelligent people in at one end doesn't really lead to more economic output at the other. Because if you throw one more novel into the 20,000 or so published a year, you're not really increasing the output of society. You're giving people a tiny bit more choice and something to celebrate if it's brilliant. But yeah, it's not necessarily a sign that we're going to become richer. So do you think we can shrink this crud economy or is it a question of trying to refocus on the things that really matter and the big challenges of the world today? I can't help but always think of this in the terms of a a special advisor thrown into the government, maybe a more positive and less messed up government than this one, uh, being asked, what what should we do? One of the things I did as uh, industrial strategy advisor for Theresa May was help work on these things called grand challenges, where you said, rather than like picking a sector or a company or a region that you really want to boost up in some way you think well what are the challenges we're really worried about and how can we direct ourselves towards that and the green economy is an absolute classic one of that we need to do enormous things in order to be compliant with net zero by 2050 and the aging economy is another one so these were two of the grand challenges that i sort of pushed for and and we got put in and then got immolated in the sort of Johnsonian government afterwards. But, you know, there's still vestiges of it there. So I would say for what the government needs to do if it wants to get more sort of real valuable activity is actually be more bold and interventionist in saying these are the things we want. So uh, net zero is going to be the biggest part of that. So trying to do things to put hundreds of billions of pounds into reforming the electric grid so we can have more renewables. Trying to do it directly rather than the sort of 
free market Panglossian world where all you need to do is give people more of their own money and make the price incentives good enough. And somehow they will all cluster towards the right things with a high carbon price. I just don't think that works. And I think we don't have the time to experiment with it. We, so we need to be more directive, like like Joe Biden's being over in the States, where you actually say, do this activity, do an end run around all the crud straight to the stuff you need to do. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, mm. is of course, what uh, the Bidenomics uh, plan consists of. But it's also, it's almost the opposite of levelling up, isn't it? Because mm. levelling up is like trying to fix bits here and there, whereas you're more keen on a grand strategy that we all push towards uh, and that creates momentum that leads to a more productive economy. Well, I mean, I think that's a very generous interpretation of my sort of semi-worked out <laughs> ramblings. But I also think you've been very generous about what levelling up is. I don't know whether, have you made your way through the white paper? Did you, can you remember I that? I have thing? actually read the, <laughs> oh, the, the, the white paper. And yeah, I, I, I think people have gradually got more indulgent towards levelling up uh, yeah. as time has gone on, as the phrase has become more in currency. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I always thought that it was a very dubious way of trying to help yeah i think um people. i mean that white paper was extraordinary it had lists of like medieval cities which ones was the high yes but, it, was it, was really quite, it was quite amazing piece of indulgence and also i mean to put in a political swipe it's the conservatives who kind of leveled down a lot of places in the 80s now returning to the scene of the crime and saying oh my goodness who did this and we need to re restore it is is biodynamics very different from leveling up um yeah, I, I would say the frustrating thing reading that white paper with levelling up is quite how indirect and theoretical it was. So it's a kind of example of the sort of intermediated and indirect way that our government operates rather than getting straight to it. So whereas Biden is putting subsidies and tax breaks straight into the activities you need and is already producing a manufacturing revival in lots of places, including places that are actually left behind in a sense in the states. So a lot of them are Republican red states immediately seeing activity going. So where I think it's different from levelling up is not so much whether it's, it's hitting left behind areas or not, because I suspect the manufacturing impulse is going into places that really need those jobs and will really benefit from it and probably will still vote Republican. But it's the directness that I think is so awesome. The fact that they're not producing a consultation on a fund that might start raising money that then produces something in five years time. They're putting the money straight in and they're making a lot of mistakes, I bet, but they're doing things. And yet we've seen with COVID, it can be quite dangerous to throw money at a problem. Mm. We saw that with PPE and all the corruption over procurement. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to get a balance, haven't you? You've got to yeah. get that sense of urgency, which I suppose you get during times of war and pandemic and so on, but also a degree of guardrails. It's a really fantastic tension. I mean, you're right to point that out that People saying, we really need this money spent directly. You don't want a cabinet minister sticking his hand up and say, I met a guy in a pub who reckons he can make gowns. And so politics and intervention is a tension between the two of like rules-based arm's length versus decisive Rooseveltian sort of getting really stuck in and doing things. Now, um, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man to do both. And I think I've got a little sympathy, having never been in government during a time of such extraordinary crisis and confusion. I've got some sympathy for them just trying to pull every lever they can. But, uh, I, I can't really comment on the extent of the... Uh, the I mean, the, there was some terrible waste in, in, in the COVID stuff, but I suspect the worst of it was actually some of the massive loan schemes that just went out to everybody. Uh, they... I think, it, it, I don't wish to sound too political, not every government would have behaved in exactly that way. The tone comes from the top. And if you have people at the top who say, look, 
all hands to the pump, but by the way, there's some rules here, that might have actually dealt with an awful lot of it. Instead, I think it was just all hands to the pump, who has a good, who, who knows somebody who can make PPE. So we want to be more direct. We should be able to do it with some more rules. Um, corners get cut, but, you know, it doesn't need to be that bad every time. And there are specific things actually around, partly around net zero, partly around infrastructure in this country, which don't seem to me to be very planned or working very well. I suppose EV charging is an obvious one. Yeah. It's a bizarre EV charging system in this country where they don't seem to be, for example, at motorway service stations very much, or there yeah. seem to be very few of them. You have to go off the motorway to get to get a recharge. Yeah. And there's and it doesn't see, it, there's clearly very little very little oversight or planning. Is that something that could benefit from this kind of approach? I think this is something about government in general, um British government in particular, where we often just we seem to pussyfoot around a little bit. I mean, the I, I think we also seem to be at the early stage of a nascent market that will get better and better. Like, remember how many different kinds of charger you used to have in smartphones back in 2004? There'd be so many different ends you'd find in your drawers five years later. The specific problem with motorway service stations is you need a kind of state impulse too because you need a monstrous amount of electricity infrastructure under the ground to deal with lots of those things at once. And that needs a negotiation with big grid companies and then the treasury gets involved and says have you got value for money here and we then spend a lot of time arguing about whether we're just going to plump up their profits or it's additional or not and if we were in a real wartime scenario we would just do it not worry too much about some capitalists making too much money but we just really really get on with it and I think we've lost that sort of impulse because we're so concerned about preserving value for money at times and we also love doing things by a free market method so we say we, we could just tell people you're going to get a certain subsidy for putting in EV charges of a certain kind and just mandate it. But instead we say, well, let's see what the market's producing. This is an innovative company. They're trying something. Let's see if we can fund them. And it just goes a bit more slowly. We don't believe in planning as much as a country anymore. And I think we're going into a phase where we're trying to change the economy so much we're going to need to get back into it. And does this apply to housing as well? We know how hard it is to build houses because there are so many, partly because of opposition from NIMBYs, yes, Mm. but also because there are so many rules, aren't there, and regulations around building. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but I suspect the moment you start trying to build a house, you find it immensely frustrating. I did did sit next to a developer at dinner recently, and she described her life of this one of constant sort of bureaucratic fighting and arguing. It makes you realise why property developers are often these Trump-like characters whose strongest quality if you like to call it that, is the sort of bullishness, ability to sort of break rules and not care about people they offend and drive things through all the time. I think it's often always been that way. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time when it's been particularly easy to do things. And when people might have built houses much more easily, it was the time when governments would just routinely bulldoze slums and turn people out. It's partly a consequence of being democratic that we say, well, actually, you have a say on whether your granny's house gets bulldozed for this block of flats. Otherwise, the housing thing is absolutely maddening and it's mostly about land. And we've been arguing about land and who gets the value of land uplift since Lloyd George and Winston Churchill fought for a land tax before the First World War. So I'm not expecting it to be solved anytime soon because it's politically, um, it's political kryptonite. Giles, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me here. And if you enjoyed this bunker, you can back us for as little as £3 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast, and that's not the crudic economy that will really help us. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening.
The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Liam Tate, Simon Williams, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>